met this little girl. She'd been cut at five. She'd been raped at 10. She was carrying a child. We found her at seven months pregnant, gave her a safe delivery. Called out to God and said, what are you going to do, God, with other girls like this? Who else is going to do this, God? Because I'm on my way home. And he said, you are. You are. The audible voice of God said, you are. In a genuinely, very deep genuinely voice. audible. Yeah. Genuinely audible voice. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. I'm really excited this week. I mean, every week I'm excited, but uh, some guests, I, I don't know, I, I think we've got a lot in common. Uh, it's our, we've got a shared association with uh, CMS as a sending organization, Church Mission Society, our nation of origin as Brits, our motivation for getting stuck in where... Uh, not many people would choose to go. I love Africa, working in dangerous countries. I know our guests had lots of those, uh, sort of dangerous experiences. Setting up a charity, seeing beautiful works of God in very grim circumstances. We've had the privilege of working uh, with amazing people from different cultures across multiple nations. And and then uh, recently, you were awarded a, an MBE by the Queen, which is fantastic recognition of wonderful work. Having to be resilient through all sorts of sucker punches. The list goes on. So uh, <laughs> welcome, everybody, to Dr. Anne-Marie Wilson. MBE. Oh, thank you, Sam. You're the first person to say that, <laughs> to use that in my title. Is that right? <laughs> um, well, listen, just in terms of um, letting people know, if, if you're new to Inspired, basically, uh, we are bombarded by relentless, depressing bad news. So the purpose of this week by week is to bring in mates from different walks of life who've just got their own journeys and being real and sharing stories, you know, the sucker punches of life, overcoming faith through difficulties, whatever comes our way. And so I just hope in 45 minutes to now, whatever, you, you will leave this more encouraged. And I have absolutely no doubt you will be because Anne-Marie has had a, a heck of a life. She's the founder of the charity 28 Too Many. We're going to be talking about female genital mutilation, um, as well as uh, battling um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And uh, she, she was um, a high fly in the city. And there's, I mean, there's so much to cover. So let's just get <laughs> stuck in straight away, Anne-Marie. I don't want to do the talking. So give us background, context, childhood, anything significant there? Well, I think the, the, the most significant thing is I grew up in a village in 60s Britain, rural village, England, like near Windsor mm -hmm. and near the, the, the Windsor Castle, actually, where I'm now going to go and get my honour. So I think that's kind of coming full circle in my whole, I've just hit my 60th um, birthday, so I'm in my sixth, sixth decade. And I think that's quite interesting. That's coming home as well. Um, I had parents who'd grown up Orthodox Methodist and Orthodox Anglican. But they got modern in the 60s, as many people did, and thought, well, let's just kind of be a bit more modern and not force faith or religion, I suppose, on our children. But they made the interesting choice of sending me to a convent school, mm -hmm. which was spot on for me, actually, in as much as it gave me structure and discipline and generosity and the ability to think about values. And I am thankful to the nuns for that. That was an incredible gift, actually, they gave me. It came with complications, and we might touch on that a bit later. Sure. But overall, my education was a blessing to me. So I, that's the context I grew up in. I, I realised very early on, from about six upwards, that I wanted what the other girls in the convent had. Mm -hmm. So I forced my parents somewhat to take me to Sunday school. I soon got palmed off on somebody else's mum. But mm -hmm. actually, I did go to church from seven up from my own free choice, and then later got confirmed. Sadly, missed the Holy Spirit and um, got Jesus and the main man, but missed the Holy Spirit. It was a, it was scary at school because it's called the Holy Ghost, and I was a bit freaked out by that. Right. But I, <laughs> I won the confirmation prize and missed the Holy Spirit in my confirmation classes. But carried on with God right through to 18, 
um, having kind of left school at 16, which was a bit of a radical shock to everybody and certainly my school and parents as well. But that was the sort of upbringing I, I grew up in. I was an only child, didn't have siblings, but my parents wanted the best for me. Yeah. So uh, tell us about you know, your encounter with Jesus then. Well, I, I was in the basement of an old Georgian church, probably very much like the one I've just been going to recently. It's only just given up its Georgian church. And I felt this kind of shivering all over, this experience I'd never had in the whole of my life. And it's really funny, Simon, when you've got no context for something new, I kind of think of my, my brain files lots of shoeboxes for new experiences, but I had no, ex no language for this. Mm-hmm. I had this kind of shivering experience all over, a bit like a ready bet glow, I kind of think of it as. And it was, I knew it was the best experience I'd ever had. But I knew if I didn't open my eyes sooner or later, all the other kids in the Sunday school would be going, what the heck's she got her eyes closed for? Yeah. But I had a sneaky suspicion that as soon as I did open my eyes, which of course did come to pass, it would all be over. And it was. And I didn't know what to tell anyone because I didn't know what had happened to me. And I'm absolutely convinced that was the Holy Spirit coming into my life. And I think it was incredibly useful to me to know that God actually had been manifestly living inside me from that moment on because I sure needed to lean on him mm. from that day forth. Yeah. And you, you, you were sort of wired, weren't you, pretty early days to end up doing something like what you've done in your life, weren't you? I think so. I mean, I gave my, I come really from those back old sort of 60s, 70s with pre, pre-decimal currency. I used to give my pocket money in thripney bits to the missions boxes at school. I think I was an unusual child. I didn't fit in and still don't really to my family. I'm a bit bit of a one-off. So because I'm a one-off and I had no one to compare with, I just made my own path and nothing seemed too weird or wacky really. I just knew from an early age what it was like to not feel I fitted in. Hmm. And um, did you have your eyes set on... Because it's interesting because I knew I was probably going to do something relatively off you know, not off the usual <laughs> off career path, but I also wanted to have an initial experience of what a regular good job was. So I went, you know, briefly into marketing before I got this, my dramatic call to Burundi. Did you had actually a 10 year full on career and successful career in the city? Was that, did, yeah. was that always the plan? Well, no, I think it's, um, I had always had an interest in medical issues. I think health generally. And I think that, that, belief in holistic health so a whole body experience of head and body physical mental spiritual and emotional I think that was really important to me from early age from when it wasn't really talked about that sort of holistic experience of health it was very much sort of the head is from the neck up and everything else is from the neck down mm -hmm. so I very much thought we were all one sort of being really but I, I had very much wanted to go into something medical um, maybe as a surgeon when I was five, but maybe I got too excited by my little sort of doctor or nurse's kit from playing <laughs> as a kid in dressing up, really. Mm -hmm. But actually from, uh, I think I just decided from about 12, 14 upwards, sciences weren't really for me. And I couldn't see the point of doing traditional A-levels. I'd grown out of school as it was because the schooling wasn't relevant to what I wanted to do next. I had been going to do occupational therapy. That was what I was marked for doing A-levels. But actually, I went on a bank open day at 16, 15, 16. From that day, I made this astronomical um, change of heart to, to realise, realisation, I suppose, that I could 
do something different from something medical and still help people. Mm -hmm. So I left school, went into banking, and within a year, which was just completely unique, was promoted to the head office and worked in HR, personnel as it was called then. So I was right back in with the people part of the business and then went from, I did uni in Manchester and then went to work in Marks and Spencers. But all of these things meant that by the time I left Manchester, my uni place, which was where my father had hailed from, so I saw his family back that way. And I'd actually acquired two years beforehand and a couple of years of working my vacations back in the bank. So by the time I graduated, not only had I got a degree in business studies, but I'd also got it joint on as in marketing, which I know is your specialty early on. But I'd got four years work experience, which actually was as useful to me as the degree piece of paper. Yeah. So you're kind of being fast tracked. But I mean, did you see it as business as mission? Was it a sense of calling in that? I think it was healing people's mission in those early days. I think I quickly moved from, I only lasted in personnel proper for about six six months or so and realised that, you know, bashing the unions wasn't for me. If human rights was and their unions had its place, but it wasn't about a power thing between management and unions. But I moved into trainings and it was all, all about selling values and visions and dreams and aspirations. So I kind of think that was mission, really. But at that point, it was, yes, I had got a faith and I practised that faith throughout my university. I went back to a university church I went to my first university church when I was up in Manchester which was my first modern church like a sort of student church which was very different from my growing up church that was a very new experience to me and very positive so yes I suppose I did share my faith and interestingly enough I had a boyfriend from about 17 to 20 odd and then a second boyfriend from 20 odd to 30 odds um, and both of them were Jewish and not only did this give me a very much a rooted feeling of the, the role of Jesus and his upbringing in everyone who's Christian, his story, but also for Muslims as well, which is most of my mission work has been with Muslims. Mm. But it also gave me an opportunity to share my faith and how it was similar or different. And so I think I've probably had a very multi-faith view on faith through from the beginning. And that's probably where my sharing my faith and, and sharing the best of it and also mission came from and started out. I don't want to sort of skip straight too far forward in one go. Any sort of key moments from from that time? I think, I suppose back to the God bit, I had a a bad experience when I was about seven or eight and my my teacher died when I was, my classroom teacher died when I was that age. My grandma died. She was my only grandparent left by the time I was born. And also I was abused by a priest at school. And so that was a particularly dreadful year. But I think that's also very closely linked to when I had that Holy Spirit experience. And I think that was probably God giving me something to hold on to that's comforting. That, that made me realise that he that that God in in a form was with me throughout everything, even the worst things that happened to me, and that gave me confidence to lean on Him throughout the rest. So that was probably a significant experience. And then the other thing was that I did actually convert and marry the second of those two Jewish men, right. and that was quite significant, I suppose, stating the obvious, really. Mm-hmm. But I became. Um, as many people who go from one faith to another convert a proselyte, you become more passionate about your faith than almost anyone that's born into it. Right. And I became an elder on the synagogue board and then also on the board of the Reform 
Jews in Great Britain. So early business experience or leadership beyond my years, really. Um, And it wasn't till my early 30s that my husband um, divorced me. And when you're then a sort of proselyte, um, convert, divorced woman without any obvious natural family and you've carelessly lost your married into family, you do stand out a bit. But I kept that Judaism going for about five years. And I would say probably even now, I would say I feel like a completed Jew rather than a convert that's gone backwards or a convert that's gone into something different or convert that's gone from basic Christian faith to sort of born again, charismatic, real faith. Oh, go on. Say say a bit more on that. That's really intriguing. (laughs) I think... um, I suppose growing up in my church, church was quite boring and dry and fairly dead. It was liturgy without much presence of God. But the church I I met in my 20s at uni was very alive, and and so is the one I'm part of now, more charismatic movement, I suppose. I think what Judaism gave me, a very like Catholicism gave me, being in um, Catholic families all my life, all my growing up days from sort of four or so up to 12 or so and then Judaism took over fairly quickly at 16 to sort of early to mid 30s it was about God being there 24 Mm 7 all the days of the week it's about food it's about family it's about celebrating well it's about marking deaths well yeah it's real. Total integration, isn't it? Yes, very much what mission is actually. Any, you know, many faiths in mission, particularly Christianity, I've met in Africa and Pakistan and other parts of Asia I've worked in, whereas much of the church in England is not like that. But did you have to park Jesus for those 15 years then? That's a really good question. I think I had historically prayed to the main man of God probably from Catholic roots. Mm -hmm. And then the Holy Spirit I knew was a connection, that spiritual connection. I followed in my prayer life, the life of Jesus. And of course, that's very, very true for the five years, all the years I was Jewish, that sort of decade or so, because you are going through the annual calendar of the first five books of the Bible, which are the sort of main mm-hmm. Torah anyway. And so I followed through that, and that was all about Jesus, actually. What I gained was learning how Jesus had been, and he'd had his bar mitzvah, and how he would have gone up to this, that, and the other, and the festivals, the Purims, and the Pesachs. And so oh, yeah. I think I gave myself a rich tapestry. I, I fleshed out that tapestry with a rich golden. I suppose, sparkle, really, that I never would have got if I hadn't converted. So I don't feel I've unconverted. Mm. I just think I've gained. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Um, Listen, I don't want to jump over. You mentioned... um, your husband divorcing you and it's holy yeah. it's holy ground and I, I don't I don't have overly pry but you know that's it's basically a lot of people feel that once they're divorced that they're excluded from God's plans and purposes and we totally reject that don't we so can you speak mm. as much as you're able to I'd love you to tell yeah, say what of course happened. of course my my husband it's quite an interesting part of my story really my husband and I had gone out for three years and particularly because I wasn't Jewish his two sisters had married out which means they married non-Orthodox men, non-Jewish men. Of course, for me, with the, the son and heir keeping the su- family surname, mm. I was marrying the, the son. And what the, the part of marrying the son meant was that I, I 
needed to be Jewish as well. I actually chose to be Jewish myself. I had a really good three years of being um, dating and engaged to this man. And then from our honeymoon onwards, literally, I was physically abused. I had no expectation of that coming, but I... In my, we wrote our own marriage service because we had a church blessing, which was really the equivalent of a whole wedding. Mm-hmm. We broke a glass and we said the, the 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 seven blessings and all that sort of thing. My mum actually embroidered um, a, a holocloth, a bread cloth for us for Friday nights, and she actually talked about the fact that she was she got the in, divine inspiration for how to do this directly from God, mm. because by then my father had died. And my mum, I took back to Christianity, but a a born-again Christianity Mm. when I was a Jewish woman. Wow. Curious is that. So I took her on an alpha course, (laughs) and she was completely a different woman, which is so strange for me as a grieving daughter. (laughs) Praise God, we'll see each other in heaven. So that was obviously very positive in hindsight, but it was a bit weird at the time. But my um, husband, my vow had included a bay him so from literally the the night after we were married literally our honeymoon night was okay but the next night when we went on honeymoon i was hit every night and i suppose i didn't know that that wasn't normal he had been probably quite a controlling coercive control we'd call it now but when my when i was 20 i had no idea about that there was much less information about that i didn't know that was normal and having promised to obey i was an obedient person And I thought that, well, maybe that's what happened in marriage. Hmm. So that was obviously fairly bad. However, um, I endured it. But it got to a point where actually my health was suffering. And I think, um, as I mentioned briefly, I'd been abused by a priest at school. And that probably had almost felt like a, a little shard of glass had gone into my heart from that Mm. some damage had done and actually maybe even on some unconscious level converting from christianity he was a catholic priest to judaism almost made some disassociated view of like well it's a different god now yeah in a very simplistic form i had no intuition in this but perhaps that's what formed but of course now having come into a jewish tradition and my husband was abusing me and in, in Judaism, as with most faiths, really, the, the husband it has got quite an important role mm. of head of the household. And I didn't know who to tell, so I didn't tell anybody. Um, and time went on. And then actually it wasn't until my mum died where God was still very important. And I think I realised very early on from that fer- fairly early abuse that happened on my honeymoon that I came back, literally I'd been back in England a few weeks and I just I said to my husband one night, I want to convert to Judaism. And I think what I felt was that I needed us both to have something in common that was bigger than us in our marriage that would help us for me to not be an annoying wife and annoy my husband and make him more likely to abuse me, Mm. but also that we'd have something in common that we could, that would make the family accept me. And then I would be able to fulfill my role in that family as well. So how long did you endure? The abuse. Well, the abuse went on right the way through my marriage. What happened was my mum died. And my mum outlived my dad by about another four years. Both my parents had cancer that became terminal within the four years of their health issue. Um, And so it was about 10 years, really. 
And as soon as my mum died, my husband was very keen to sell the property we owned, uh, my mum's property, which we, of course, jointly owned. We hadn't been married that long, but he wanted the property to be sold quickly. We, I literally had to go for a quick settlement within literally a few months. It was sold within three months of my mum dying, really, which was very hard for me and traumatic to sell up the family home where my parents had lived for sort of 50 mm-hmm. years. So we did that. And then I think I just fell apart really after that. I'd never told my mum about the abuse, probably to protect her. She'd mm-hmm. never asked me what happened after the priest had abused me. She knew I told her and she told my school and it stopped. But I felt guilty about that. But more of that maybe later. But actually, the the experience of my mum dying meant you know at the end of the day in life I think your parents are there for life yeah son or daughter but particularly maybe for a daughter my mum was close to me Mm. and her dying meant I'd got nobody in my camp and I think I didn't know how to tell anyone else I never had any freedom to go and talk to any outside agency there wasn't much publicity about those sort of things back then no so I suffered it, and then I think I then became ill. And I think my illness, it was grief. It was complex grief. It was diagnosed as I'd never grieved my father dying because as soon as I came back from honeymoon, my mum was diagnosed with cancer, and that was on top of my 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 domestic abuse by then. But after my mum had gone... I think I couldn't struggle anymore, really. Mm, yeah. So you, were you suicidal then? I was. I mean, interestingly, to start with, I was unwell. I took some time off. I thought I just needed a good holiday, really. But I went to see a consultant and he said, no, you're going to be signed off. You know, you need to come into hospital. I thought it would be a quick fix. But actually, the whole of my story unraveled. I told them about the abuse. My husband was furious and embarrassed. And actually, uh, the suicidal um, attempt was after I had to come home. So I'd been in hospital. I'd been safe there. I told my story, but then go home and I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. So I took an attempt um, and did actually survive it, probably luckily. I took another overdose probably a year later. We were in couple counselling, but I really just didn't think anything was fixable. Mm. I was trying, but at the end of the day, I couldn't see how my husband could change and I could ever really trust him again. And actually, by then, I'm sure he was having an affair. So I think something else was going on because actually he went for a quickie divorce within one year. His new-to-become wife was five months pregnant before we were even divorced. So I'm presuming in hindsight he um, had known this person before, though I can't ever prove it. Um, I settled him, very generous settlement. My lawyer said he should get sort of 10% and I should get 90 but I settled on, I think, 40% to him and 60 to me. But basically I just inherited generously from my parents so half my inheritance went to them, him, really. Mm. But I was scared. He said he was going to take me to the most expensive lawyers in the land. He'd rather the lawyers had the money and I didn't. Mm. And I think that scared me. I thought I'll never be able to start again. And I needed to make a clean start, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it. it's really heavy what you're sharing. I, I'm also 
just so encouraged because, you know, obviously you were suicidal, but unbelievable what you went on to be used <laughs> of God to do. Um, I, I think we're going to have to jump, um, you know, so you're in your own business. I just, I want, yeah. I want to get to, anything you want to say on that before we get to? Well, I suppose that enabled me to, to um, I think for anybody listening who might have had depression or had any form of mental illness, really, having my own business, um, it could go at the pace I wanted. I mean, I was very successful very quickly. And then I went on to do some training. I got given an assignment, um, just like KPMG, the city, the city firm I'd been in, and um, downsized by delayering actually three years of, I think that also didn't help my mental health, you know, having to, to do some terrible stuff in, in a professional capacity. I had to let people go and make yeah. their jobs redundant. And it, mm. it's horrible, really. Yeah. So it put me off the city. But starting up my own business was great because I could do it on my terms and I could work the hours I wanted. It was flexible. And it was all about my passion. It, I was never going to do any work that destroyed people's lives. It was all about dreams and visions and values. So I kind of retrained a bit on the go of coaching and counselling and therapy and then eventually did a doctorate in psychology. So, you know, that's a lot of whizzing through. But yeah. <laughs> it all enabled me to sort of do what I think people needed me to be able to do so that they could heal the same way I had, who hadn't necessarily had the inner strength or skill set um, that I was, I had all the healing opportunities that hospital had given me. Yeah. Oh my. Look, we need three hours to uh, do justice know, to every know, chapter of your life. It's tricky. <laughs> uh, let's skip to, well, I mean, right. you, you end up going to work with Medair yes. and uh, the whole, whole load of different countries involvement. Yeah. Tell us plot that journey. Yeah. So I was, um, looking some volunteering. I'd kind of finished my doctorate, wanted to take a, I brought a partner into my business because it was getting too successful for just me on my own. So I brought somebody in and I said, the deal is I want to take off. Um, I think it was like three months. I took a sabbatical, realized that the planet was full of opportunities. I went around Indochina, thought there is bottomless need in this planet. So it's just a case of finding what God wants me to do with it all. Um, one of the opportunities I started with was I worked in local housing and ended up as a chair of a local housing, massive housing association, helping make sure people's housing rights were met. I ended up working with um, an international NGO board like People in Aid to make sure HR good practice happened to people who were working in war zones like I eventually did. But I also worked with Medair, which was a Christian relief and development charity mm -hmm. and started in Kosovo and then went to work in uh, Kenya um, and North Sudan and then South Sudan and it was there that I bumped into a little girl who had female genital mutilation which for those of you that don't know is the unnecessary unbiological un unnecessary for biological reasons removal of the female external organs like the labia menorah and majora and the clitoris often you can look it up if you want but um i've got a website 28too many.org which will tell you good ways to read about stuff like that without getting into nasty sites really or you can read my book and that tells you enough without too much as well but in essence i i bumped into this practice when i was in west Darfur in this war zone met this little girl, she'd been cut at five, she'd been raped at 10. Um, I had had a number of times, I had also had unwanted rape activity in my 20s, um, wrong place at the wrong time, 
somebody, an old work colleague, jumped me on offering me a lift home from a party, that sort of thing. You know, mm. I wouldn't do now, but I didn't know at the time. Mm. I was too naive. So I had, in common with this little girl, Fatima, she'd, she, at five, had had um, FGM, which is, it is abuse. Yeah. And I'd had sexual abuse um, as, an, as a seven, eight-year-old. She'd been raped at 10 and fell pregnant from the rape. Um, that was conflict rape in Darfur. I'd been raped in my tw- eight, you know, my very late teens and early twenties a number of times, and there she was. She was carrying a child. We found her at seven months pregnant, gave her a safe delivery, but she would be making a very bad marriage, mm. which kind of I felt I'd also gone into uh, inadvertently, and I didn't want her to be a fourth bride and be abused by either her. Um, the the number one wife, if she was the number four wife, or her husband, or other people in the village, because they see, saw her as tainted goods, because she would, had been pregnant, just like I was tainted goods, because I'd been um, raped or abused, and was taint, seen as tainted goods by actually church organisations abroad in mm. Africa, because I dared to be divorced. Can you imagine? Mm. So I felt I'd had that sort of slurs on my name as well. So I thought I would protect this little girl. I couldn't do anything for her. But I literally had to go home. I'd broken my leg, as you do accidentally when you're in Kenya, in mission, tripped over somebody's handbag handle (laughs) and ended up going home for a bit of R&R. Saw this little girl, called out to God and said, what are you going to do, God, with other girls like this? Because she sure as heck wasn't the only little girl like that. She was the only survivor of her village, the annihilation of her village that was burnt to the ground. And as I cried out to God... I said, who else is going to do this, God, because I'm on my way home. And he said, you are, you are. The audible voice of God said, you are. In genuinely, a genuinely voice. audible. Is it? Genuinely audible voice. It's the only time in my life I've ever heard the audible voice of God. And because I didn't have that big a faith for that long, I'd come to face in Alpha late in my life, really, only it's about age 39 or something. Mm-hmm. So I, because I'd come to faith late... I didn't really know what God couldn't do. So actually being miraculously healed of my depression and my mental health trauma and history or miraculously hearing the voice of God was not out of my mind's possibility of what God could do. Does that make sense? It does. But can I just interrupt you there? Because sure. you said coming to faith, which, do you know what I mean? On the back of yes. what you shared earlier. Yes, just coming to faith. That. I suppose, yes, coming to faith in a new I call it like that aha moment. I did an alpha course because I didn't really know the foundations of my Christianity. Hmm. I walked away from them as a Jewish woman. Hmm. And I thought, well, I'd actually looked at Indian sects and I'd looked at New Age and I'd looked at Islam and all for about six months, actually, in an academic study sense, because I thought, gosh, I've already gone through Catholicism, <laughs> Judaism. <laughs> now it seems I've gone through Anglicanism as well. I better jolly well make sure I make the, one, the next one the right one. (laughs) So I had a quick whistle-stop tour through a sort of two-year alternative um, comparative faith course of my own making, as you do, going on a a course run by the Dalai Lama at Wembley Stadium. He said, look at all these women in their maroon robes down here who have turned their back on their natural home faith without even looking at them. Hmm. And that hit me between the eyeballs, really. I don't remember anything else he said for the three days. I'm sure he did. But the only thing I remember was that line. I thought, gosh, that's what I've done. Hmm. I've never explored again Christianity properly as an adult. 
I went on this alpha call because I thought I'll give the Christians one more try. And I literally felt teleported to the Sea of Galilee. I can still shut my eyes and see the colour of that water that day and a, and a shape in a white shining light. Must have been Jesus, I presume. Literally a translucent white shiny light of human form, sort of walking on the edge of the Gal- Sea of Galilee or turquoise water. And I had asked God for an experience that was so impressive, I couldn't possibly have made it of a figment of my own imagination. Mm -hmm. Then I couldn't fake it. And that's what I got that day. So that's what I mean by coming to faith then, properly, that aha moment Mm. that has been with me for the last 20 years, you know, nearly. And if you can, my childhood faith, which was naive, but not very well-founded. I've probably been a Christian for 40 years of my life, and I have a nice kosher sandwich of 20 years of Judaism in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Hi folks, this podcast comes out under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach, and over the next few weeks, over the Easter season, we're doing an appeal for a fantastic project. We are building a pastor's retirement village in Karuzi in Burundi, basically. They are often these pastors left on the scrap heap of life, having given their everything for decades. There's no social security, there's no pension system in Burundi. And unless their family take care of them, they can end up absolutely destitute, hungry, and even regretting that they gave their life to ministry. That is so wrong. And so we are looking at buying 17 and a half hectares of land, which means that the whole project will be self-sustaining. Uh, for 25 pounds or $30, you could buy 100 square meters. And that is a gift that will keep on giving for decades to come as every harvest season, fresh crops will be grown and provide for these precious people that gave their whole lives to ministry ministry. It's a brilliant project. I'd love you to be a part of it. Just £25 for, for or $30 for 100 square metres or more. Uh, go to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors so that we can honour those who honoured him. I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or with their children begging breath. That's what I want to be contributing to. Great idea, brilliant vision. It's going to happen. Do you want to be a part of it? Please do. All right, let's get back to the podcast. So back to Fatima. Uh, yes, and so that yes. is a game-changing God experience, God encounter. You have the, his is. audible voice. And yeah, yeah so take, take us on. Well, I suppose the thing that happened with that is I went back to my church, as is my style, and went, okay, guys, you know, I've been rolling around mission on the edge of it for a few years. It's okay. You can relax now. I found out what I meant to do. I heard from God. He told me audibly that I need to end the global practice of female genital mutilation. It's only been around for 2,000 years. You know, it affects most of Muslim North Africa and quite a lot of, you know, the diaspora of where it happens from. People come from to somewhere else and do it. Quite a bit of Asia as well, but it's okay. Single-handedly, God has said, I'm going to do it. So, you know, let's just get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine how that went down. And they went, whoa, not so fast. (laughs) So I had to let them catch up with me, which was a little bit frustrating, I will be honest. They made me wait for seven years. Can you imagine? Very godly number. And there's lots of stories where people have been made to wait. Mm -hmm. I am an obedient person. I'm not going to disobey my church. 
That's good. So we made we we made an, an agreement. Really, I didn't know it was going to be seven years. As well as I might make more fuss, believe me. But they said, right, we need think you need to make sure you're really healed. So I went off to an organisation called Interhealth. Mm-hmm. I did some deep deep healing with a woman called Lynn Button, mm-hmm. who was fantastic. And you know, it's difficult if you've come through a path like mine. There's lots of hurts, lots of shame, lots of issues. But I got my life cleaned up quite a lot with conferences and Christian conferences like New Wine I went to and got healing from and talks on things like that. I put a lot of effort in. Um, I got like a, a course our church did called Oasis, which is a women's healing course where you sit with two other women. And I had to do some work with forgiveness of my ministers at church who upset me and things like that and vice versa, possibly. And who knows what, but I cleaned all that up as well. Um, meanwhile, I was retraining, so I was finishing off my doctorate. I did some consultancy for Tear Fund, which was perfect because it paid a little bit of money, was giving me a taste of mission work. I was evaluating Tear Fund's um, work over 10 years, had their global um, t- um, had their global aid work made any difference to the planet. Well, what's an opportunity like that? So it comes up once once a lifetime, if that really. So I had my finger well and truly in mission world there to see what they did. I learned a lot. I did my summer holidays of going to do other missions with other agencies. I went with Samaritan's Purse and worked in the post-Chernobyl, working in children's camps where they were doing rehabilitation post the the terrible disaster. Children who'd got genetic cancers from the eating the fruit from the land and the pig from the wild pig in the woods from the land and got cancers from it. I did other things. I did on a YWAM course, Youth with a Mission. I went from Colorado because I wanted to go to different contexts of seeing very big mega churches in Colorado Springs. And they also worked on a context of called the 1040 window, mm-hmm. which is 10 degrees one way and um, 40 degrees latitude and longitude and was almost all the places I'd ever been and subsequently did go to were in that one place. So I think that was a calling thing as well. Mm. And then I did, I got lots of training for myself while church was gradually, you know, getting more confidence in me. And I also did retraining in um, Pakistan, the northeast sector of Pakistan, very dangerous. Um, And I learned basic midwifery. I think I did six babies there and another four in northern Nigeria. I think that's the right way around. Later on my day off when I worked in northern Nigeria, working as a an assistant in a fistula rehabilitation clinic in one and in a Christian hospital in the other. So I kind of learnt, I, I ran a fistula rehabilitation centre for a, a, an FGM charity called Forward because I wanted to work under another NGO and a non-government organisation, a charity that could give me some experience of doing charity work. And I didn't necessarily want to run my own organisation, in fact, far from it. But in the end, people gave generously. And one of the most extraordinary moments was you need money to set up your own charity. And I was still kicking and saying, I don't really want to run my own charity. But once my church had given me the green light and said, yes, you can go out and do stuff, I was asked back by the same organisation, New Wine, who, had, who I'd gone to so many of their conferences and learnt so much from, to come and do a short talk there. And I spoke literally for three minutes, if not less than that. And I talked a bit about what was going on in Afghanistan and with women like I'd met Fatima and such the like in 
Somalia and um, Sudan. And the women in the room, there were 900 women in the room, and they gave um, £9,000. Mm. Talk about a collective intake of breath, don't you? Yeah, you do. I heard them inhale. When I talked about Fatima, I heard them inhale their breath. And actually, that's a very loud noise when 900 women all inhale their breath at the same moment. Mm. I thought, oh, there's people out there. I was in the spotlights. I couldn't see them. But yeah. that 9,000 was 4,000 more than I needed to set up my charity. How generous is our God? Mm. So I thought, well, actually, everything's lining up. My church had to agree. They also said I had to find a sending agency that would be an umbrella over me because they didn't want me coming home in a body bag. And I actually, I think they thought I wouldn't find anyone that would take me because FGM was absolutely not talked about back then. But I found five agencies that wanted to take me. So I said to them, you need to help me now choose. And I did. And then um, they let me go. Mm. And so I ran 28 Too Many for the last 12 years, really. Why is it called that? It's called that because of the 28 countries just in Africa that practice FGM. Right. And I decided that it was best to eradicate this practice from one continent first because it's the poorest lines in the sand that have come from our colonial past. And, and there's no, you know, in Kenya, Somalia, there's, there's a line in the sand between where one country starts and the next ends. And, of course, people come over the borders to either get their girls cut or avoid... Yes. Their girls being cut. And so I thought I need to work on one continent together, really. And that brings us pretty much up to kind of early last year, really. The, the charity went from strength to strength. We end up having um, 10 staff at the end of it um, who still work with me. We, we, in pandemic, when money was really tight and many charities lost vast amounts of their money for obvious reasons, they weren't going anywhere, um, I did a, um, a marathon in a wheelchair, pushed by people, as I wasn't very well at the time. And we got £28,000 from that. And then, then I did the London Marathon last October, which I never thought I'd be able to do. And I got another, you know, eight grand or something. For Running yourself? Hospice. Yes. Well, I walked most of it, I must what? admit. But I did run a little yeah. bit. And I did it in something like seven and a half eight hours which is quite presentable actually yeah well all the more because we haven't touched on that yet but but because of your your, your health and uh, yes yes just when everything was going well i kind of got through the charity start the charity was about five years old i suppose 2015 so i'd been running it for three years as a going concern and i'd been with cms five years by then um and, you know, like you have organisations go a bit through like age groups. It was almost like we've gone through the terrible tantrums and we were a five-year-old going to school. Mm-hmm. All was going well in my organisational size. We've got a solid group of 10 staff. The board was very diverse and all very skilled and amazing. And I got diagnosed with late-stage um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is supposedly an incurable blood can- cancer. And, you know, it's like, no, this can't be for real. (laughs) Mm. My charity's too young for me to get somebody else to run it. I really should be too ill to be running it. And yet, what am I supposed to do? If I leave, 
my charity's work will never fulfill the 10-year dream I set, which was a 10% reduction in FGM in 10 countries in 10 years. Because there's one girl cut every five seconds in the world. So I thought, I have no choice. I have to keep going. But what, what ended up facing me, they don't tell you on day one, by the first three years of, of my diagnosis and treatments, I'd had 24 cycles of chemotherapy. Wow. Which is hardcore. Makes walking, I, I won't say it's harder than working in a war zone, but they're both pretty well up there. Yeah. And <laughs> you know what? It was pretty tough. I, I was surprised, as in now, because uh, from your voice, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect in terms of the, the progression of the disease and how your voice would yeah. be, but you sound completely normal. But what, what does your daily reality look like now? Yeah, it's pretty good, really. I think if somebody saw me from the outside, they'd have no idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no idea. I'm more tired than I was, but maybe that's because I've got older. I had a hip go wrong. I had a hip replacement in... in um, May last year, the second hit, because the, my, the chemotherapy has kept me alive, but it's, it's really messed around with my rheumatology and lots of bits, really, my eyes and all sorts of things have gone wrong since then. But they keep going and I get them patched up by our wonderful NHS and on I carry. Um, but my second hip replacement, the first was great. The second one went seriously wrong in May and they accidentally cut through my sciatic nerve. Now, you really mm. know about that. If someone does that, I came around from the anaesthetic, was supposed to still be long acting and it's like, oh my gosh, the pain was something else. I, I, don't, I didn't even know how to lie on the table. I was sobbing with pain mm. and, and, you know, a good wodge of morphine for a good few days before I could even lie still, actually. Mm. However... You know, life goes on. My sciatic nerve is still cut. I have a, a my my right leg is now um, paralysed and has no feeling in it. It's 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 got. It looks like one of those adverts for the children in the sixties who had TB. Right. It's splinted because it won't work. It it's dropped. I've got foot drop like the girls had in um, the fistula rehabilitation clinic I walked in worked in because the urine of destroys nerves in the bladder and bowel area similarly mm. my cutting my sciatic nerve has not done great for the mobility in my lower leg so it's an extraordinary extra strand that i'm now disabled literally i walk with a stick but not a pair of crutches and i do still walk um very exhausting things like maybe going to a wimbledon or something or to a out outdoor opera i might use a wheelchair but most things i don't um but other than that i look fairly normal but i have got a disabled leg from a fistula accident and do you have daily carers come in i have a carer i'm paying for privately because there's no nhs care um package for that and i paid myself for um five hours a day on Wednesday to Friday, so 15 hours a week. And that enables me to do all the things that other people find are comparatively easy to do. I'm not saying everyone does, but like changing the bed or put, take, putting the washing on and then 
lifting the heavy load of wet washing into the dryer and then folding it up, lift, tearing it up. So those sorts of things. I can't do those. I can't do shopping for myself. can't carry it. I can't drive now because it's my right foot that's disabled, mm. whereas I had an adapted car when it was my left before I could drive with an adapted car, my right foot, but I can't at the moment drive at all. So that, and and I just heard that the cost of a new car that needs to be leased from Motability, the disabled car charity, is something like, you know, up to £2,000 for the excess just to, just to buy a new car. Right. So I have a carer to do those sort of things. She's made up three lunches for me today for the next three days because she's not in. And then I have a, an access to work person who does the admin for me. So typing because I can't see properly because my my um, the, my optic nerve has been affected by the chemo too. Wow. So I've got very bad um, double and foggy vision. So, so that's also difficult. <laughs> so so how how do you stay chipper? I mean, you sound really chipper, or are you faking yeah, it? Yeah, no, I'm not at all. I really am. I think I, I kind of wonder that myself, really. I kind of think, I and mean, it sounds a euphemism, doesn't it? There's always someone worse off than me. I think God has just given me an inner joy. I suppose, if I'm honest, Simon, I'm so grateful to be alive. I was given a seven-year prognosis. Mm -hmm. I asked that difficult question. I didn't mean to ask that difficult question. In fact, I didn't ask my prognosis at all because it's only God that numbers my days in my book. Mm -hmm. But I went to see somebody who I thought looked as though they were dying, and I'd seen too many people in hospital. Both my parents died, and I nursed them at the end of their life, and I'd seen people overseas dying, so I know what they look like. And this lady smelled and looked like she was dying. Mm. Her stomach was distended, and I thought, no, this woman is near death, really. And I looked up stage four ovarian cancer, and I, I thought, yes, this woman is not long for this world. And as I looked on this table, produced very helpfully by Cancer Research UK, I would definitely suggest nobody looks that up if they've got any form of cancer. Never look up what it says, because it's never going to be a good thing for you to know. And I wished I hadn't heard it. But it said my type of cancer with the staging I'd got was seven years. And it's like, oh, my goodness, I was then at year three or something. Um so I thought I'd better get on with my bucket list. <laughs> well, you'll be glad to know, Simon, I have done 96 things off my bucket list. Wow. It didn't start off with 96. <laughs> Pandemic came up <laughs> alongside and I couldn't go abroad. In fact, I was shielding and completely isolated for 18 months. And I thought I haven't got any time in my life to isolate and do nothing for 18 months. I've got to seize the joy. So I had to make local things. So anything that's new is, is the criteria is it's a bucket list thing. But I have done amazing things yes. and I've now just hit my 60th year. The, the best news is I've outlived my prognosis. That passed last summer. Brilliant. So I'm in year eight. This yeah. year is year eight. By June, I will be eight years. Yeah. And it means that that prognosis, I, I, you know, every day is precious. And every day when I open my eyes just like I was in the crazy war zones I lived in. Most dangerous places I've lived in are northeast Pakistan, northern Nigeria, and West Darfur. Yeah. Really, those three. And when I woke up in on those days, I had my thought for the day. I used to take the book with me, and I opened my eyes, and the first thing I thought was, thank you, Lord, you have brought me through the night. Yeah. I am alive. Yeah. Today is a new day. 
can totally relate to that. And 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 yeah, uh, yeah the biggest gift Burundi has given me as a post-conflict or war zone was is the gift yeah. of gratitude to still be alive. There you are. There so, you are. So that's so, what I have too. And, and I think if, as people are listening, I, I just say <laughs> on 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 many. I'm sure on many levels it's impacted them. But just like be grateful for today. You know. Oh it, my it, gosh! It you so never much know. Confidence, it? You never know. And I just think actually, God probably knows I'm a bit of a closet. Um, control freak, <laughs> yeah. if I'm honest. I, I know what I like to do. I like, wanted to run my charity for the 10 years so that I could see it fulfil, which it did, its 10-10-10 plan. I wanted to, you know, kiss my godchildren and nest my charity into another organisation so it can carry on beyond me, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to get to all my bucket lists being fulfilled. And I have pretty much done it. Yeah. And I think that is God's generosity, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. And actually, I'm eternally grateful. And I'm still grateful. And I I've, I did a, a little kind of Facebook um, memory book for the last this is the last one I've just printed from this up till December last year of the eight years I've been alive and I won't do any more, but they are the eight years that I, my prognosis was and God has outlived. God has given me more than my prognosis. And I thought, well, if ever I'm just ill in bed and I can't do anything or just in bed, can't do anything. I've got those pictures to look back on and I've got 96 things in that book yeah. and many, many more that I can make sure that, you know, no, my life is absolutely Riches beyond kings. Yeah, and um, surely it wasn't on your bucket list, but actually um, then comes an invitation by the Queen to uh, come to Buckingham Palace. T- tell us about that and any yes, other award. absolutely. Right, I got a, I got a, a British Citizenship Award in the, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. I had a very lovely day up with Baroness Cox at the House of House of Commons, House of Lords for tea. So that was really rather impressive. But I've just got an MBE, which is absolutely incredible. Um, and it came on a bit of email and it said, do not discuss the contents of this me- email with anybody. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this has got to be spam. I was just about to hit the delete <laughs> button. <laughs> and it said, you have been selected for, or you've been put forward for. It didn't actually say selected. And so I thought, gosh, I better not tell anyone because maybe I haven't made it yet. Yeah. Then they do the screening forms and what have you. But they, I did come to pass through the long list to the short list, and I was put in the London Illustrated News, and there we are. I get my day at the palace, so oh, very exciting. Well, that will be fabulous. And uh, yeah, and I know you, you you accept that award as as we did, you know, on behalf of a whole bunch of people with us that have journeyed with us, haven't they? And it's great. absolutely right, Simon. And I think it's all my staff. My staff have gone into this new charity called the Orchid Project. It's, it's a charity the founder Julia and I. Um, Julia was the founder of Orchid Project and I'm the founder of 28 Too Many. And we both hoped one day our charities could merge and it has come to pass. So all my staff are already over there. I've had a, had a six-month-off sabbatical, study sabbatical, which I needed because I was deeply tired after um, running the, the merger project through for a couple of years, really, and going through shielding and doing all this on my own. Um and now I've got some admin help as well from Access to Work grant as well. So I go back to my um, portfolio of four part-time jobs. I'm a chaplain in a children's hospital. I know, yes, it said it quickly. Chaplain in a children's hospice, giving back. Um, a chaplain in Marie Curie in Hampstead. I've been there for the last five, six years. And I am 
um, a lay minister in the Church of England, looking to what God might want next from that, and also running the um, as a <laughs> senior research advisor in this new merged charity. So we have 20 people in the team, and I'll go out to Kenya in April to um, launch the new strategy of our joint charities. Um, and what's so exciting is I haven't been back to Africa since I got my cancer. So in year eight, as healthy as I am, I will get on that plane thinking, hello again, Africa, my friend, I have missed you. Mm, I am sat here shaking my head in disbelief. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, oh, guys, if you want to um, read uh, Anne-Marie's story, her book is Overcoming My Fight Against FGM. Funny enough, we haven't talked that much about your, your main life work, but there's, I mean, that's, please, guys, do get that book published by SPCK. Anything you want to say on that? Well, I suppose just to say the first bit of the title, yes, it's contextualised again my, against my fight against FGM, my 20-year journey of running the charity from Born Again Christian through to to date, really, 2019 when it was published. But I suppose what I would just say is if you just focus on that one word, my gift to you today is that with God, you can overcome everything. Mm. I hope in my whistle-stop tour through my colourful life, I've touched on something that might be bothering you. Yeah. And maybe it's given you a little bit of confidence that you too can get some solace from that. But if it hasn't, read the book and think, well, what is God calling me to overcome? What addiction or problem or family circumstance or accommodation situation or phobia, you know, you name it. I would just say there are strategies in there that will help you overcome everything. Yeah. Listen, um, you are already a quarter of an hour late for your next Zoom. <laughs> your next interview, whatever you're going to be doing. You're, I, 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 this is the longest um, podcast I've done. I th and I think you're the hundredth. And I think it's just oh, absolutely yes, so wonderful. Um, oh. And I just, I'm blown away. And so it's been so edifying. I just tell you what, one last question, because I find your spiritual journey so fascinating. Sure. Uh, just, just tell us a parting shot on your, on, you know, what, what Jesus means to you. Oh, Jesus means my everything. He is my companion and he goes 24-7 and he lives inside me. So even when I was in, nor in, in, in northern Nigeria and someone said, Have you, where's your husband, where's your uncle, where's your brother, where's your everything? And I said, no, I haven't got any of those. And they went through person by person. And I just, they said, well, that's really sad. In Africa, <laughs> where family means everything, they thought that's seriously sad. Never met anybody quite as often as I was. And I said, but I have Jesus in my heart. Mm. And Jesus lives in my heart and soul. I do everything because of him. And I do nothing that he says don't do. I qualify everything I do. I only do things. I answer prayers. You know, when, when it says yes, it's yes. And when it's no, it's no. And even this weekend, I was on a prophetic creative course for the weekend where we went um, to see what words we had. And I had the name of David in a specific coffee shop who had a knee and a back problem. He had funky red glasses on. And indeed, I did meet, of course, a David who had all of that. And he was blown away. He actually said, where's the piece of paper with my name written on it? Yeah. And I showed him. But I suppose that's Jesus inside me. Yeah. He literally orders my life. I suppose that's who Jesus is to me. He's my brother and my lover and my best friend. Beautiful. 
Right. Anne-Marie Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Simon. Brilliant. Well, uh, folks, um, (laughs) can you please uh, share this with your mates? I mean, I I, I think it's a big ask because I I guess you're just as blown away as I am. Um, Give us a great review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. if you want to be in touch with me at simongilbert.com um, I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and Mike Sanderman for the mixing next week we'll be back with another fantastic guest everyone's unique but Anne-Marie Wilson you are one of a kind thanks so much everybody toodaloo <laughs> <laughs>